Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's new episode is my 101st interview and launches the third year in this awesome podcast series. They're all great interviews, and I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. On today's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Lauren A., a woman who rose to the top of her profession as a prima ballerina and enjoyed international acclaim during her 23 years thrilling audiences around the world. But the career she had built through many years of intense training and dedication were absolutely no match for the alcoholism and drug addiction she encountered along the way. Her early forays with alcohol and marijuana were not unlike the experiences of most of us. She found they provided physical relaxation, sociability, and soothing mental calm amidst her grueling schedule of training, traveling, and performing. But soon Lauren passed that invisible, though inevitable, line between casual use and addiction, and she found herself a hopeless alcoholic. Fortunately, her unmitigated talent, ceaseless training, and unmatched dedication somehow kept up with her disease. She was a highly functional alcoholic, and she continued to excel as a premier dancer, though her ability to hide her alcoholism began to wane. As her work life began to suffer, the disease continued to pull Jenga pieces from the tower of success she had built. Her personal and professional lives began to teeter. Facing the completely disheartening collapse of all she had strived for, an unexpected run-in with the legal system turned into the divine nudge she needed. As the curtain was falling on a beautiful life nearly extinguished by alcoholism, Lauren found AA in 2009 and has been sober ever since. Though Lauren's backstory as a ballet superstar has literally been the subject of many articles, as well as a theater production and an upcoming book, the most meaningful and impactful gifts in her life occurred after she found AA. Working the steps with a sponsor, attending regular meetings, spiritual practice, sponsoring other women, and indefatigable service work both within AA and the dance community have enriched her life beyond compare. Lauren's AA recovery story is sure to touch your heartstrings, and I'm glad I can bring it to you in this podcast. So, sit back and enjoy the next hour and ten minutes with my good friend and AA sister, Lauren A. Good morning. My name is Lauren, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Lauren. I'm so glad that you're able to do this this morning and be with me on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You are an early morning meeting person. Have you been that way over your entire sobriety? Absolutely not. I started out going to 6.30 p.m. meetings because it was after work, and I had to go, as in like Harris County decided that I had to go to meetings, <laughs> and I had to have a paper signed. So oh, yeah. uh, the best time for me to be consistent, because I had to go every day, was after work. So you went every day after work. What's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is 7-15-09. That is July 15th, 2009. So I'd say for the first week of meetings that I went to, uh -huh. I went at 6.30 in the evening. Once I went started going on the weekends and discovered <laughs> that there were other meetings 
in the morning. Uh, after about two or three weeks, I started going in the morning because it was right before work. It ensured that I got to work early. That's a smart thing to do. I know. Yeah. So you get you get asked or let's say required to go to this meeting back when you went to the 630 in the evening meeting by Harris County. Now, of course, that's the county that Houston is in. Now, was this the Harris County Cultural Committee or what part of Harris <laughs> County was recommending you go to AA? Well, I'll tell you, a judge who I am so grateful for because she pretty much she saved my life for sure. Mm-hmm. So I caught a case. <laughs> caught a I caught case. a case and it went from city to county. And then the state of Texas just kind of decided that I needed to have to hold me accountable. Yeah, I had to have a paper sign that said I was going to 12 step meetings every day. And I had to have my paper signed for every day for a year. Every day for a year. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? It was warranted. <laughs> well, I know. But don't don't a lot of people who get those papers, they're required to go to a couple of AA classes a week, as some people call them? I have no idea. I, I was not versed in this. I just did what I was told. Because believe it or not, uh-huh. I am a rule follower. So I, I thought, how am I going to do this? I got to go to these meetings. And so I was I was in IOP. So that part was easy. But it said 12 yeah. step meetings. And it was suggested that I go to AA meetings uh, after I joined IOP. So I went uh-huh. and I'm glad I did. I was taken. I didn't just go. I was taken. Yeah. I was kind of voluntold into going. Yeah. Was IOP part of that year long requirement or was that after? Well, actually, I was. Uh, I went to treatment. Treatment, okay. And when I went to treatment, and they did the the assessment, right? They said, um, "Well, you should get outpatient." And I freaked out because I thought, "How am I going to get sober if I go to outpatient treatment? I won't be able to do it. You need to lock me up because I don't know how I'm going to do this." Hmm. And um, they suggested IOP, and that since they suggested that, that's what insurance paid for. So that's what I did. And it was exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. If I would have written the story, I would have written it differently and probably messed the whole thing up. So that was the first time I had to actually let go and surrender to anything. I'm curious, when you mentioned about writing the story, what would the Lauren pre-sobriety have written that story? What would she have said in that story, in her story, about why she had to do this? I would have said, yeah, I was kind of forced into it. I don't even know because I didn't, I wasn't thinking I want to get sober. I wasn't trying to get sober. I knew I had a problem. I knew my life was a wreck. I knew Uh that um, I wanted to stop using, but I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And I'd I'd heard of AA, but I didn't think about AA or any other 12-step program. I didn't think about it. It's just, I was thinking, you know, Will, I can do this. If I can be this great ballerina and I can Uh go through all of this, how come I can't stop drinking or using drugs? Yeah, I get that. I get that. You know, when you mentioned that, I was thinking the story most people tell themselves is that they have to get sober because the world's out to get them, or they have to get sober because this or that. Everything except acknowledging that they have a problem that they cannot handle themselves and they need something bigger than themselves. I knew I had a problem. That was obvious. I just didn't know how to stop doing it. Was this the first time that you noticed you had a problem or were there other times in your life that you took a pause from whatever was going on and saying, I think I have a problem with this? Well, um, 
No, I think that's, <laughs> that's really well. <laughs> I, I well, no. I, I, let's think about that. So, as I go back, I think when I became pregnant mm-hmm. with my son, I thought I got to stop doing this. So I stopped. I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing cocaine. I stopped. Hmm. Just once I saw the two purple lines on the thing, I was like, ah, and I stopped. It was amazing how that happened. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I breastfed for two and a half months and mm-hmm. could not wait to get back to it. Couldn't wait. Mm-hmm. So I pumped the last bit of milk and stuck it in the freezer, rocked Lawrence, my son, to sleep in this arm and snorted my first line of cocaine in that arm and had a sip of wine because I was done breastfeeding. So I thought, OK, I'm done hurting him. Now let's go back to killing me. Right. Yeah. So from first finding out you were pregnant until putting that breast milk in the freezers close to a year. Yeah. So was it just sheer will that you were able to stop or was it fear of something going wrong if you didn't stop? It was this overwhelming sense of responsibility to this this mm-hmm. child that only lasted about a year. I had so much shame and guilt saying that, but I can say that now because I'm sober and I've been through a lot since then, but I had this overwhelming joy because I didn't even know I could have a kid. I was 37. So another dream of mine came true to have this kid. So that, but it only lasted a year, which is crazy, but it's the truth. I'm an addict and alcoholic. So that was more important to me than staying sober for sure. Well, and obviously you wanted to protect and not harm your newborn either before you gave birth or shortly thereafter, given the amount of time that you breastfed. Isn't it ironic though that you were looking forward to that and you couldn't wait to go back to it. Couldn't wait. <laughs> and yet what you're going back to is something that has at least as much, if not more, of a potential harm to that baby. Oh, for sure. Than having used during your pregnancy. What shocked me was how much more I needed to do to feel better. Yeah. I couldn't believe how progressive, when I look back on it, I think the disease is definitely progressive because... I didn't pick up where I left off. I was way beyond. Yeah, you picked up where you would have been had you not stopped. Had I not stopped. And I didn't believe that until um, most recently a play was done about my life. Uh huh. And I did three years of interviews for that script to be written. And I, disc- I thought about it, and it came to me while doing those interviews. I was like, wow. When the topic of my son and going back to what I was doing before... I thought, wow, I I was way past where I would have been if I'd picked up where I left off. Because mm. I literally, I was running towards the cliff to jump off. I just jumped straight in. I just I just dove off the cliff. Hmm. Yeah. So about the time that you started using again, did you get the sense that what you were doing wasn't all too smart at that point? Or were you just willing to push that thought to the side? My brain told me that this is how I was going to be able to keep up with raising a child and getting back to being a full-time prima ballerina. Yeah. I had to get back in shape and I had to get back on stage and I had to live up to what everybody thought I should be and what my son hopefully thinks I will be and who I thought I was trying to be. And I all of a sudden, my mind told me that I had to become bigger and better and more fantastic than I was before. And the only way I was going to do this was by stuffing all the ways I really felt Uh and doing more coke and 
drink, you know, yeah. More, more, more. More, more, more. More, more, more. So what you're saying is that all of these things around you were justifying reasons to go back to doing that as opposed to knowing it was harmful and maybe you should find some other non-harmful ways to do it? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I get that. It was almost easier just to go back to drugs and alcohol than it would have been to go to the gym and (laughs) eat well and not smoke and... Yeah, I mean, my son had asthma, so I had to, I mean, it was crazy. So I had to dodge, figure out, I smoked outside and made sure that he was asleep and did the thing. I mean, it was just, my life was way crazier and I thought it was easier Mm -hmm. and it was like four or five times crazier to, to do all of these things and manage the child. Yeah, that must have been really, really difficult. Now, were you getting any feedback from people close to you, family or friends or professional colleagues about slowing down or stopping or finding another method? Well, of course not, because I hid everything. Okay, yeah. And I was good at it because I've been doing it for a while. So, um, and I was still performing. I was high functioning. I was still performing and actually performing quite well um, until I wasn't. And of course, that's, that's one of the great liabilities of success and great performance while drinking and using is we couldn't possibly be alcoholic if we're achieving all this other stuff, right? (laughs) And now now I'm working even harder at my craft. So I'm getting better while getting worse. Yeah. Getting better while getting worse. And then, of course, everything falls apart. Where do you imagine that you would be right now had you not used alcohol and drugs? I know that's a tough question, but what would you be saying about your life if you had never done it? It's not a tough question. I would have probably, let's see, this is, I am 57, so I probably would have retired seven years ago instead of 16 years ago. I probably, yeah, well, you know, and I say that, and that's only in the physical and how I think my body would be or would feel. Um, But I have to say, that if I hadn't gotten sober, I don't think I would be as good a friend or good employee or as good a mom. As, I really don't. I mean, I know that, not that I was a bad person. Right. Or not that I'm a bad person without recovery, but there's there's extra. I got the bonus. I got the bonus of getting sober and, and being in recovery while getting sober, not just not drinking or not using. I mean, I, I work a, a, a program of recovery in all the ways. So I'm a really good leader in my job. I'm a, I'm a really good employee. I'm a great employee, actually. I'm a really good friend. I'm a good sister. I'm a, good, I'm a great wife. I'm a great mother, which yeah. I was not. Any of those things. Even when I, I don't even think I was as good an employee when I was sober. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so it took becoming an alcoholic and having to go into recovery from the alcoholism to bring you the gifts that you're talking about right now. And I wouldn't advise people to become an alcoholic or drug addict to do it. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, and of, of course, it's something that we have to go through all of that just to get the stuff that we might have had anyway. Yeah. But uh, sounds to me like alcoholism kind of crept up on you along the way. What was your family of origin like when growing up in your house? Well, my father, well, uh, didn't drink much. No? No. The only time he really drank is is socially, literally outside of the house. Mm-hmm. He'd have a drink, and that drink would probably last all night. Right? Yeah. He'd nurse, he'd nurse a drink. My mom, on the other hand, 
I am not projecting anything on her. I'm not calling her out in any way, but definitely one of us. And she warned me. She said, Lauren, we have a history of alcoholics in our family. Your grandfather died from wet brain. Um, I have to be careful. Um, and I think you probably have to be careful because of your personality. I don't know mm. what she knew. I know that she's not in any recovery programs because when I <laughs> when I got sober, she was like, well, why do you need to go to these meetings? But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I get it. So I, it, it, yeah. And then when I look at both sides of the family, my generation mm -hmm. kind of went left. There's more like me and my cousin and some other people in my family that are in recovery for sure. Mm -hmm. But, and you don't talk about it. And you don't tell anybody your business and you don't talk about it publicly. So the play about my life, I thought, was going to cause a huge uh, riff in my family. And it didn't, actually. That's didn't. interesting. And that is interesting. Did your mother openly acknowledge the fact that she had a drinking problem? Or was that something that you were able to notice or label on your own? I labeled it after I uh, got sober. No, she hasn't. She hasn't acknowledged that she has a drinking problem. Actually, she's. Yeah, no, she hasn't acknowledged that she has a drinking problem. I don't know how she's doing it, but she is careful. Isn't that something? She is careful. So I think that she's not an alcoholic. <laughs> I think she just has she just drinks more than she just enjoys herself, I, I'll say. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I think it's really interesting how we as alcoholics once we get it and we're in the program, we see it and then we see it in people around us who are not acknowledging it. There's a, there's a desire to want to see them acknowledge it or to see them get some help. And quite frankly, not all of them, well, obviously not all of them want it, but some of them don't really need it. Maybe they are just heavy drinkers and their lives aren't falling apart around them. So, And I can say that about my mom. I, I'll tell you, when I first got sober, I was the judge and jury of everybody. <laughs> I, I was like, she needs help. And I am not, mom, I'm coming over, but I'm not bringing the wine. <laughs> now I bring the wine. Like, I go to a Christmas party, I'll bring them a bottle of wine. That's what they, and they, and, and whoever, whoever it is, right? If I yeah. know that that's what they want, if they're clients or whatever. Because they don't have a problem. Yeah. They don't have a problem. I'm not bringing alcohol to somebody who I feel has a problem. I'm not doing that. But it amazes me how little people drink. I mean, what, well, the people I hang out with now that are normies, right? Right. It amazes me that they'll have one or two glasses of wine and stop. Yeah. I don't, I, to this day, I don't understand it and I'm not going to try to. It just is. Yeah. And the more you try and understand it, the more you'll find reasons why they're right and you're right. not. That's what I say when I talk about uh, your alcoholism and your ego ganging up on you. It's a two against one there. And you have to be really careful because people can talk you. People can talk other people into drinking easier than people who are sober can talk people who are drinking into stopping. So right. uh, I get that now. So you're you're a kid. You're growing up. Your mother's your mother's drinking. Uh, there's this history. You said you lost a grandparent to the disease. Yes, before I was born. Before you were born. Okay, so there's this, there's this family history going on and everything. At the time when you heard that, or maybe as you reflected on it as you were a kid and maybe becoming a teenager, what did you think about that? I thought, yeah, that's not my. I, it's not going to be me because I didn't really drink. I mean, mm -hmm. I and I say that. But every time I drank, I drank alcoholically. Like the very first time I drank, 
I drank a lot uh-huh. and I passed out. How old were you? I was nine. Nine nine years old? I was nine and it was at a I was at a uh, family function. Uh-huh. Family wedding and my cousin and I, who was ten, we were refilling the champagne. Mm-hmm. So we'd refill it and then sneak off and have a sip and hee the bubbles hee and then we start to feel kind of you know and it felt good it felt great mm. and we sat in a giant windowsill and drank you know drank some more and my my mom was angry my grandfather was like you know it's okay she's with the family they'll be fine but there was just family and that's but I remember that specifically and then the next time I drank I was in the 11th grade and I was at Eastside Park and near my school and mm-hmm. there was you know I <laughs> I had some chicken <laughs> for lunch and it was uh during a final and the only thing my friends had out there was a, a cooler of beer well I didn't drink but mm-hmm. I'll have I mean it's May and we're in Houston it's hot so I you know Guzzle probably about half the beer, maybe or a third mm-hmm. of it, because I'm thirsty. And it, I feel good. Yeah, it feels great. Uh-huh. And I go back to school to do yeah. a final, and of course I go to sleep in the final because I don't <laughs> drink. I can't handle it. Yeah. And I get in trouble. And my father's a uh, principal. Okay, my father's not the principal of that school, but he's a principal. So the prin- assistant principal of the school walks in and. I'm in trouble. Uh-huh. And they say, just send her to the, my office. And so I go to the office and I wait there until uh, my ride to ballet or whatever. And I sober. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm okay once I wake up. But the next day, they have principals meetings when school is out. So yeah. my dad comes home and says, okay, so what happened at school yesterday? And I'm like, oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm an only child. Yeah, my dad's he a knew. principal. <laughs> You know, and he goes, so um, he walks me outside and he says, well, I want you to see what I got you for, for graduation. And it's a new car. Well, not a new car, an old car, but it's new yeah. to me. Nice. My favorite car, but the, my dream car, an electric blue T-top Trans Am. And it's wonderful. And he looks at me and says, go pull it into the garage because of what you did yesterday. You're riding the bus to summer school because you got it incomplete. Oh. So you have to do summer school in this one course. I got A's and B's and an incomplete. So I, you know, yeah. So I ride the bus to Sharpstown High School, blah, 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 blah. With a beautiful car in the garage. With a beautiful car in the garage <laughs> all summer. Yeah, and the best you could probably do is describe it to people, but they uh, they didn't get a chance to see it. Not until uh, the year started, yeah. Yeah, so between the ages of 11 and let's say 16 or 17, however old you are in 11th grade, my guess is that you were pretty busy doing ballet and dancing and everything else. Some other people I've had on the show who have been very successful in what they do, one of the reasons why they didn't drink a lot was because they were so engaged in whatever it was that they turned out so good at. What was your experience with regard to that? Yeah, I, I just focused on ballet and school and being a girl and doing all those kind of adolescent, teenage girl things right and that's it it was ballet 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 school ballet 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 school ballet 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 school then my dad gave me an ultimatum when i was when i graduated from high school you got one year to get a job as a ballet dancer so all i did was focus on ballet Uh uh-huh i will say that i i did um uh dabble with a little marijuana because yeah ballet dancer because at that time 
after ballet, after being so controlled, you know, we kind yeah. of smoked a little weed and laughed and ate and woke up and went back to ballet the next day. I mean, you know, did that. But that was about it. That was about it. And then I got a job as, as a professional ballet dancer. So you had the opportunity to smoke weed. What kind of experiences did you have where it was a really tough decision whether or not you wanted to adhere to whatever you were doing to stay focused on your career aspirations and the desire to check out for a little while? Well, my check out was was the weed because my personality is like up and perky and alive and energetic. And so Uh it was nice to just, (laughs) what I say, get to neutral with a little bit of pot. But um, but I didn't drink a lot because when I was drunk, I was out of control. But when I was smoking pot, I was at neutral. Yeah. Whatever that means. That's that's what my that's whatever that means. And then um, as I got older, I, I do like to drink. But at that time, I wasn't drinking a lot. I drink enough to just kind of. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I checked out. And now yeah. I think about it. I had to think about it. <laughs> I, would che- I would check out as much as possible. Yeah. Because I was so in control when I was in the studio or on stage. Mm-hmm. And when I was training, I mean, you have to be so. The good news is the first thing you do every day of your life as a dancer is a ballet class. So you sweat it out. Mm-hmm. So I sweat for a living. Basically, I got paid to sweat. So it would, you know, that was the good news or the bad news. But that was the good news. So I didn't have to. Um, I didn't go to work hungover a lot in the beginning. Mm-hmm. In the beginning. In the beginning. How long did that last? Once I got in the company and became what I thought, quote unquote, was an adult and started traveling all over the world, I drank as much as possible. But I mean, not, it wasn't a lot like at the end, but it was a lot for me at the time. I mean, you know, like, sure. you know, bottle of wine wouldn't happen every night at that time, but it was often. And anytime I had time off, I was messed up the whole time. Huh. Like either smoking weed or, or drinking, like, you know, in party mode those two days off. So then it became partying all the time on the weekends as much as possible. Yeah. Unless I had interviews and most of my interviews and stuff like that was in the morning. So you were able to plan your alcohol and weed smoking around other things going on. And you mentioned earlier about being a functional alcoholic. That's when it started. I think that's when it started. Yeah, that that makes it so tough, too, because everything around you and everyone around you is telling you you couldn't possibly be an alcoholic if you're achieving so much. And that's the last thing you need to hear when you're actually becoming or are an alcoholic, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm hanging around with people who do the same thing. Definitely the drinking thing, because that was what was done in the, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, socially acceptable, too, right? Yeah. What were you noticing about people around you who were drinking and smoking? Well, I definitely wanted to continue the party. Uh So I, yeah, I definitely wanted to find ways to go to the next place or do the next thing or keep it going even longer. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I was in the process of being the life of the party and invited to all the parties Huh. It's interesting because on on the back end of this, and I and I was also a guest teacher, so I would go and guest perform Nutcrackers in different cities and different places. And as I have gone back there now as a master teacher, 
not now, say like in the beginning when I first got sober, mm-hmm. in my welcome basket was always a red and a white. Mm-hmm. There was always a red and a white or a let's go and have wine or let's go and have drinks. And Not that people don't say that all the time. They do. But that was definitely the first thing that was mentioned. So when I think, I think, God, what impression, what an impression I left on these people. And it was everywhere. When I wasn't telling people I was sober when I first got sober, mm-hmm. you know, and I would just. You know, oh, I have to get up and dance tomorrow. I'm just going to have a club soda and a thing, you know, was my yeah. excuse. And then eventually I just had to say, you know, uh, I can't do this. I've got to go to a 12, I've got to go to a meeting. Right. I've gotten sober. I've got to go to a meeting. You know, I had to kind of say that. And now everybody knows. Everybody. The whole world knows. Right. Not that the world is looking at me, but I'm saying the, my world Everyone in my world knows. Yeah. And of course, not not everyone in your world. Well, let's say everybody in your world, but not everybody in the world knows that the way you've gotten sober is through AA. And of course, we're, we're, we try and remain anonymous to that sort right. of thing. But there's nothing saying that we can't let people know our experience, our personal experience. What I was interested in, uh, too, as you're talking about the red and the white and, and all these other things being provided for you over the years, and the reason I asked about other people around you was whether or not you had any colleagues that you saw who were drinking or doing drugs. Did you notice any people around you who had problems with that, that you were able to compare yourself to, or were you, were you just not that outward focused? Well, when I was doing it all the time, yeah, um, and we were going on tour, there were certain people that worked in, in the organization that would help, I guess, uh, enable this behavior. Mm-hmm. And of course, there were people that were doing it also. So, yes. And then there were some people that were doing things that I would never even think of doing. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm not that bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not that bad. I never thought that I was an alcoholic or a drug addict because I thought an alcoholic or a drug addict was someone that was under the bridge or or not even under the bridge. So say that person that was, you know, I don't, I don't know. I thought it wasn't me. I thought it was all the things that it wasn't me. I thought it was who I saw in the movies and all that. And I'm not doing that. And I'm not that bad. And I'm not putting it in my, I'm not shooting up. So I'm not that bad. I'm not smoking. Right. I'm not using crack, so I'm not that bad. Of course, that's ridiculous, but that's what I thought. So the comparing myself, yeah, happened all the time. And then I got to the point of, well, why don't don't they want to hang out anymore? It's three o'clock. What? Come on. We don't have to be on the, we don't have to do the thing, you know. Yeah. That's a heck of a lifestyle, too, especially when you've got people around you who are not only enabling you, but, you know, actually participating with you in the exact same activity. I interviewed a man who you and I know pretty well, uh, who said part of the enabling that went on for him was all the people around him were addicts and alcoholics too. So of course they wanted to enable him because otherwise it would, it would call such attention to their own issues with it. Now I'm curious with ballet, obviously the physical part of that requires certain things. I've heard from time to time about like amphetamine use. Is that widely spread throughout that particular profession or is it no different than other sports or entertainment? I'm sure it's no different than other sports or entertainment. I have no idea because I was strictly Coke and alcohol. Coke and alcohol. Yeah, at the end I didn't smoke pot oh. because I couldn't turn when I when I was stoned, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't turn the next day very well after smoking weed. So yeah. I just stopped doing that because I was a turner. 
and I want I needed to be able I to turn. So I found something else. I found something else, and I needed to be thin. So that kind of worked in my favor, right? Yeah. I can say that I, I don't know. I never took pills when I was dancing. Uh huh. Because I mean Advil, Advil, and ibuprofen and aspirin because it hurt. Because my toes yeah. hurt, my knees hurt, my hips hurt, my back. I mean everything hurts. I'm an athlete. I wanted to ask you about that, whether over the course of your career, obviously there's a lot of wear and tear on the body. Mm -hmm. What did you do when you got into extreme pain or when you had injuries along the way? Well, one thing I definitely did. I mean, I mean, uh, I took a lot of anti-inflammatories just because, you know, because of the, the point work, standing on your toes and your knees. I mean, we have the same kind of injuries as football players, believe it or not, except the concussions mm. and the bruises from getting hit. But we do it to ourselves, the running and the jumping and the the way uh, we train. The I mean, it's eight hours a day, five days a week. It's not just come down on the weekends and rehearse something and practice something. I mean, it's a nine to five. Uh-huh. And then, of course... There's the stuff that you do to keep your body in shape outside of the studio. So all that is still going on. Mm -hmm. It's just that after I'm done, it's so nice to, to throw back some drinks to calm down, to calm my, you know, to relax and eat and then get myself mm. going, <laughs> which just makes makes no sense, <laughs> but it does. And then also I could drink yeah. more when I when I did drugs, right? I, I wasn't a sloppy drunk because I could in my head because I could drink more. And then, of course, coming off stage and having whatever drink you like ready for you when you get off stage. I mean, it was just, I mean, there was a lot that, yeah. And your mind tells you one thing, that you're performing at yeah. this very high level, you know. And then, of course, you, you eventually you're not going to perform at that very high level, right? Your body conks out. Yeah. It gives out. And you get injured. And things happen. I mean, I didn't look forward to injuries because I'm that dancer that danced no matter what. So um, I did whatever it took for me to get on stage. Let's just put it that way. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So you danced through the pain, and whenever it was that the performance was over, you took the opportunity to relax completely. with... Completely. Check out. Check out. Completely. So how many years did that kind of behavior go on for you? When did it ramp up and for how many years did you do that until you got sober? Gosh, you know, unfortunately part of your memory goes. I know. So some years I've lost. Yeah. I'm going to be, or some moments, not a complete year, but some moments I've lost. I will say completely check out all the time Yeah. after my son because I knew that I was also going to be retiring. Mm. Before that, not complete checkout all the time, but pretty often. I get that. That's the most honest I can answer that. 
Because so I'd have to say, let's think about this. I retired in 06. My son was three and a half or four before that. So probably all together and take out the year of pregnancy and all that, maybe nine years. Hmm. I say 10 years because of the year of pregnancy with that, you know. Yeah. At intervals along the way, what kind of feedback were you getting from your body or from your mind or from people around you that you might have a problem with this? Well, I mean, definitely. Yeah, my best friend said something to me. So Whitney Houston died. And my best friend said something to me and said, Lauren, I just see that being you. Ooh. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to be fine. So, yeah, I'll never forget that. And I was like, wow. And I hadn't talked to her in a long time because the disease separates you from family and friends, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I noticed when I got kicked off a flight, I'll never forget that. Well, I hadn't quite gotten on the plane yet. But when I was kicked off the flight in the airport before we boarded the plane, because oh, it was delayed, no. so I'd been drinking at the bar. Yeah, I... That should have been a clue. I mean, that was definitely before Lawrence. So I don't. I wonder how many years before my son was born, I was acting a fool. Yeah. So maybe along the way, even though you were acting a fool, you weren't noticing that very often, or you weren't remembering that you noticed yeah. it. Yeah. And as yeah. I think back, I did those three years of interviews about my life and dove into this topic, and um, uh-huh. there's some things that came up. They're on recording. I said, we have to record all the Zoom interviews. <laughs> so the recording is, And there's a book coming out. So some of those things will come out. Yeah. I tried to kill myself for a long time <laughs> before getting sober. With your behavior? With my behavior. And yeah. Was there anything actually behind that that was going on? Some people do have kind of latent desires to not be around. Did you did you get any of that while you were in that period of time? Actually, the only time I thought about taking my life, actually, I was sober. And I was um, hmm. in an abusive relationship because I thought that's the only way I could get out of it. But during that abusive relationship, I was absolutely sober. I mean, I drank a little bit, but not because I had to be aware of when everything was going to shift and it was going to be chaos. So I had to be aware of when that was going to happen. Uh-huh. But, yeah. So that was pre-AA? That was pre-AA. Oh, my goodness. That was probably 20 years pre-AA, but yeah. So as you're dancing up to the edge of the cliff, and I haven't had the opportunity to use that, that particular uh, phrase before. That was good. <laughs> but as you're dancing up to the edge of the cliff... I would imagine that the ground still felt pretty solid under your feet, even though you were heading in the wrong direction. Um, What were the weeks and, let's say, even years prior to you going to your first AA meetings? What did that period look like in your life? Wow. Uh, Trying to figure out when I could drink and use with my son. So that was putting him to bed and then doing all that. And and my ex-husband was an entertainer, so he's at performing until two. So I've got to get everything back in order and pretend like I'm asleep before two o'clock, between like 7 p.m. and 2 and two a.m. I see. Right. So I've got to work all that out. And a lot has gone on between them um, with drinking and calling the dope guy and and then getting him in and out and then doing whatever I'm going to do and playing Jen Rummy on the computer and supposedly 
doing housework and, and mm. looking around by midnight and seeing it's a complete wreck and then trying to put that all back in shape. Mm. Timing when I can, if I'm going to get enough sleep to wake up, to go to work. I mean, it was just, it was chaos. It was um, crazy. And then I retire from dance. Mm-hmm. And at that point, trying to find my legs outside of the studio in an office mm. and dealing with not feeling good enough and getting half the salary I used to get mm-hmm. and not really knowing. I, yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. Not feeling like I ever fit in anywhere and not being good enough ever, having perfectionism, yeah, uh, people pleasing, wanting to please the entire world. Marriages, divorces, I mean, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. What kind of grieving process did you have to go through when you retired? Because I know sometimes when we stop doing the things that we love or for whatever reason have to stop, there's a sense of grief or loss. What, what was that like for you? I don't know if I did it because I was so anesthetized, right? I, I was drinking, by the time I retired, I was drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. My marriage was falling apart. Mm-hmm. Had already fallen apart. Yeah. And, and I was doing a lot of cocaine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know if I grieved it until after I got sober. Because even after I stopped dancing, I still danced for three more years. And then I danced one season of Nutcracker Sober and quit. I said, I'll never dance again. That's when I decided I will never dance again. I can't do this sober. I can't do this. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I was six months sober and I said, I will never dance another step as the ballerina Mm. after this Nutcracker. And I didn't. (laughs) And I was good with it. I was good with it. I was good with it. So the reasons for using and drinking around that time was about the way you were feeling over having to retire, as opposed to earlier on in your career when it was to chill out and relax after a hectic performance schedule and that sort of thing. It was, well, I think my reason, honestly, what I found out is my reason for using and drinking was because I just never felt good enough, good at what I can do. Yeah. The expectations that I put on myself were ridiculous. And I thought, well, and it has to do a lot with my people pleasing, right? I wanted to please my my parents and my directors and my teachers and the person next to me and the, the guy on the bus. And the, I mean, yeah, I don't know who I thought I had to be, but I had, thought I had to be all of these people. Now sober, I wear a lot of hats, but I'm still just me. I'm only right. one person and I'm good with that. But at the time... Because of my experiences, or my perceived experiences, some of them, Mm -hmm. or perceived what I thought people were thinking or whatever, Mm -hmm. I really just never felt good enough at what I was doing. And if you knew me, you wouldn't like me because I wasn't good at what I was doing or who I was or in any of that. I mean, it was just a, I don't belong here. I don't feel good here. Um, I never, oh, the use of being comfortable in your own skin. Uh I understand what that means. I was never comfortable in my own skin ever, unless I was in the middle of a stage, unless I was on stage. That's the place I was the most comfortable. Sometimes not even in the, in the studio was I comfortable rehearsing for being on stage. But once I got on stage, 
I was comfortable. Isn't that something? I, it's bizarre. <laughs> it's really weird. Now that I'm the most comfortable in a studio, for sure. In a dance studio teaching kids, I'm the most comfortable. Yeah, and I've noticed that. I've, You know, you and I have had the opportunity to serve on some boards together and other things, and I've had the opportunity to hear you tell your story and you know, the work that you're doing with other people has just been been wonderful. You know, of course, that's been going on for, for quite a while. But yeah. what you're saying right now and what you're mentioning is one of the most, uh, I would say, tragic parts of being an alcoholic in general. And that is, I've yet to talk to anybody who really felt comfortable in their own skin. Uh, it's seldom that you find someone who's confident and comfortable in their own skin and able to handle all situations. And they're also an alcoholic. It seems like there's kind of a dichotomy there, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I know I've I felt that way coming into sobriety, and I was very resistant, even though someone said your life can be different. I, I didn't believe it. What was going on just prior to, and what was the result of that first appearance before the judge? What was that like before you first came to AA? What precipitated that? Well, I, uh, okay, so I'm going to uh, Fort Worth to teach a five-week summer intensive for ballet dancers. And a lot of kids go to different places where the quote-unquote stars of ballet companies or the master teachers are teaching. So I'm packing my bags and getting myself together. And of course, I've got marching powder and I'm doing the thing. And I've put, I've put the, I guess, the baggie in my wallet, yeah. this little secret pocket in my wallet. Uh-huh. Know? And and I'm going there the next day. So I get in the car and I go to the airport and I'm speeding, of course. And mm. so I get pulled over and I have four warrants for my arrest. Well, and that's because I had two speeding tickets from before that I forgot to pay, which means I now have two court appearances. Well, and since I forgot to pay them, they're now two warrants. But then mm. I have two court appearances that I forgot to go to because I didn't I forgot to pay the ticket. So I didn't know about that. So there's two more warrants. So now I've got four warrants. So they take me into the car and they say, well, you know, you've got four warrants and so we have to take you in. So I, I said, well, can I use my cell phone because I'm on the way to uh, the airport and I need to let them know that I'm not going to make it. And he goes, yes. And so he gets my name and everything. And, and the guy gets back in the car. He goes, you know, my wife's favorite ballerina is Lauren. And I went, uh. oh, well, that's me. <laughs> and he goes, so then no cuffs. I get in the car and I'm calling. I'm calling to Kathy. Apparently, I forgot to pay some tickets. I tell the truth. I forgot to pay some tickets. I've got warrant. I got picked up because I was speeding. So I'll see you on Monday, like the next day. Uh-huh. I just have to go here and, and have someone do the bond thing, get me out, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I go. And of course, they search you when you get to city jail. They search you. And they've looked in my wallet. And now they pull out this little baggie that has nothing in it. But why I kept that baggie, I don't know. It has trace amounts. Traces of cocaine. Yeah. It was my higher power taking care of me. That's what it was. Well, I go to city jail and I'm in there and it's cold and whatever. I call somebody. I said, okay, so now I've done this, blah, blah, blah. I need, they say it's going to be $3,000 to bail you out. Whatever. They do the whole bail thing. I work Mm -hmm. to pull that out, but I have to go to county first. So now Uh city jail becomes county. City jail is like a pajama party compared to county. So now I go to county and and it's totally different. I mean, I'm there's like I don't know how this happened, but we get into the druggy buggy thing and uh, the people in the front are listening to the song and the song is you are not alone. I am here with you. And I'm like, what? So then, of course, I start praying because that's what comes to me. I'm like, oh, God, God is speaking to me. I'm not alone. So I'm like, just, you know. 
help me find a way out of this. How do I, how did I get here? What, what? The Sugar Plum Fairy does not go to jail, right? Yes, she does. Yes, she does. <laughs> if she's doing the kind of things the Sugar Plum Fairy was doing before she got here, she goes to jail. So I'm sitting there and, and I pray for a way out. Yeah. And, um, I get out. I'm not chained to the other people that are all chained together because I was last minute to go in there anyway. Wait a minute. We got one more. And then I get in. Uh-huh. So then we get out and we do all the things that happen when you go into county. And I'm sitting on this block of cement with all these people in this giant room. And I'm like, WTF, how did I get here? You know, one person sleep leans over and falls asleep on my lap. Somebody else is leaning over. And I'm thinking... Oh, my God. They call my name. I lift her up. I scoop this person over. Hmm. I leave. I have my, And I thought, okay, I will never, ever do this again. This will not happen to me again. Sure, of course. So I go get my car and go get my bags. And I go to the airport. And I, I was on the way to the airport. That could have been a federal case. Anyway, I go to the airport. I get to Fort Worth. What do you think the first thing I did when I got there? What do you think the first thing I did when I got there? Had a drink. Had a drink. Sure. And then I talked to a friend, and I got stoned. Mm-hmm. Now, I hadn't smoked weed in a while, but I didn't mm-hmm. do any coke. But I did get stoned. And I'm drunk and stoned the whole time because my director was out of town. So, but I'm just staying at his place. <laughs> so I teach. I do all the things. I come back home, and I've got to go to court. And, of course... Um, I get an attorney and I tell him all the things that's going on. And he says to me, because I'm honest with him because he's my attorney. I don't know him. I can be honest with him. He says, I think maybe you should go to treatment. Yeah, of course. Sure. And I was like, I looked at him like, well, why do you think I need to? He goes, yeah. it'll look good for the court. It'll look good in court. I talked to him afterwards because he's still a dear friend. He goes, I don't think if I would have told you to go to treatment because you needed help, you yeah. would have gone. But I figured you would have gone. If I told you, it will look good on your record if you're trying to do something about this to the judge. Now, it happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. So I go to treatment, and and I still try to hide this from my then-husband. Sure. I, it, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. But I tell my dad, because my dad helps pay back the $3,000 I borrowed from somebody to get out of Yeah. My life's not unmanageable. <laughs> so anyway, so then... Uh, we go to court, I go in front of the judge, and she says, um, my favorite ballerina's name is Lauren. I couldn't have stood there and gotten any smaller as I'm standing there. Mm. She uh, has retired now. She's wonderful. Wonderful woman. She saved my life. She said, okay. She literally seemed a little angry. She said, I don't want to see you back in this courtroom. You have deferred adjudication, which means... Uh, $500 of Crime Stoppers, 220 hours of community wow. service. You have to get a UI every month. You have um, probation, so I have to go talk to an officer every month. And you, oh, no, she didn't say about the 12-step meetings yet. She hadn't said that yet. And I had to do something else. And I was like, okay, great. I can, I can pay that. I can do that. I can do this community service. I don't really know what that is, but okay. Um, and I can do this and fine. Great. Thank you. I will not be. And she goes, and this will be dismissed if you don't do anything to get back in this courtroom. You, you cannot breathe hard for a year. All this, not a drink, not a drug, nothing for a year. And I literally went, okay. 
like it was going to be. No problem. You know. Yeah. Stamp, stamp, stamp. Go talk to my my lawyer and the probation. And I said, well, you know, in two weeks I have to go teach the double. Mm. You can't leave the county. What do you mean I can't leave the county? I need to go to Troy, Michigan and teach ballet. What? I got to pay back this three grand to my dad. And that's $2,000, you know, whatever. Well, you have to talk to your probation officer. So I talked to the officer and, and she says, well, the way we do this is you have to go to 12-step meetings every day. You got to get this paper signed. Mm-hmm. So when you go there, you have to go to 12-step meetings. Mm. So my first meeting was in Troy, Michigan. Really? Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think have somebody else sign your paper. Yeah, sure. I, I'm a rule follower. Yeah. And I'm glad I am because I walked into this meeting of women at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, why are these right. women not working, number one? But Okay. <laughs> I walked in. I, I didn't know what. I was scared. Mm-hmm. And I will say I had been to IOP for two weeks. You had? Oh, yeah. So I went to treatment, and they said, you, you have to go to IOP. I went to IOP for two weeks, and they had this thing called relapse rec- relapse prevention. What did you do to prevent relapse? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, these people were saying, oh, I went to seven meetings this week. And I, went to, and I was like, they're fucking lying. Yeah. They're lying. Yeah. There's no way someone's going to a 12-step meeting after having to come sit here and talk to these people for two hours every day. Yeah. You, this is nuts. They have to be lying. Hmm. And they can't be this happy. That's <laughs> They're doing something on the side. Well, we're now at week two, and I'm thinking, how am I not going to drink and not drug? And I have to go to Detroit in a week. This is before your first meeting in Michigan. Before my first meeting. I hadn't gotten to Michigan yet. Yeah. And I got to go take a UA. Ooh. So I go get the UA done. Boom. Done. I got a month now to figure out how this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I fly to Detroit the next day. So I'm still at two weeks. I fly to Detroit the next day. Boom. I go to the meeting. I walk in. I'm sitting there. And I have a Bible. That's all I got is a Bible. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting there with a the Bible in my hand. And I got my paper. And it's stuck in the Bible uh-huh. so I can remember to have somebody sign it. And I, my leg is shaking. Anybody that sits in meetings with me sees my oh, yeah. foot go like uh-huh. this. So my foot's going. And I'm sitting there. And this woman, older than dirt, reaches over and touches my leg and says, she says, baby, you just don't have to drink today. And I'm like, huh? She goes, just for today. You can drink tomorrow. But you don't have to drink today. Mm. And I sat there and I looked at her. She kind of touched my hand, and I grabbed her hand, and she squeezed it, and I put my hands down, and I was okay. And then these women talked about being mothers and sisters and daughters and being ashamed of their kid, that they were this way with their kid and all this other stuff. And I didn't relate to any of them, really, because they'd had some, sobri- they'd had some sobriety. Sure. And I'm, I'm going on two and a half weeks here or something, right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the meeting... Everybody introduces themselves and stuff. And she, and it's 10 women. She's mm-hmm. 10 women. And she says to her, I now find out, sponsee, that you're going to pick her up from her from where she's staying and take her to meetings for the rest of the week. Mm. So <laughs> that was like what her sponsee had to do. And I was in Troy, Michigan. So they didn't have, like, in Houston, we have so many meetings at so many times. Uh-huh. There's like three meetings maybe a day in the area. Unless you're in Detroit proper. Yeah. So there's Birmingham, Royal Oaks, and Troy, Michigan. Sure. So she'd take me to a woman's meeting 
I didn't go to mixed. No, uh-huh. she's going to women's meetings. I go to women's meetings, except for on Saturday. On Saturday, we went to a mixed meeting, which is where I got my first desire chip, huh. which I didn't even know what a desire chip was. But the but the old woman that's older than dirt made me go up and get it. So we're sitting there. I go to these meetings, and I go to my sixth meeting, which is on Saturday. So I've gone to a meeting every morning, mm-hmm. 10, 10, 30, 11, you know. And I get to Saturday, and it's a bunch of meetings. So I'm like, I'm in here with guys now? Mm. Okay. So, and and the meeting was funny, and I probably laughed for the first time. Now, mm-hmm. I'm at the end of week three, not knowing how I even got to week three without drinking or drugging. Because mm. I had not had a drink or a drug for years, right? I, like, I drank a drug for years, every day. Every day. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So now... And I have to talk because sure. everybody has to talk. And I said, well, she goes, how long have you been sober? I said, I've had, I've been sober three weeks and everyone's like applauding. And I'm like, oh, I like that. <laughs> I, mean, I like me some applause. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then at the end of the meeting, they give out chips. Yeah. I said, this is a desire chip, you know, the usual outside, uh, outward sign of an inward uh, commitment to not drink yeah. for, just for today. And I went. And I heard just, I kept hearing just for today. Yeah. And I looked at her probably for the first time, like, she goes, and I'm like, what? She goes, go get it. I'm like, well, I don't need that. I, this isn't my first day. She goes, do you have a desire to not drink today? I said, yes, I have a desire. I said, I have a desire to not drink today. Yeah. I didn't really know what that meant, but I did have a desire to not drink today right. because I had to get my paper signed <laughs> and I didn't want to go to jail. Right. So I had a desire to not drink. So I went and got my first desire check. And... I was so proud of that thing. I'll bet. Ten thing. Uh-huh. And she said, now put this in your wallet and keep it. And no, and then, because I was leaving the next day. Yeah. And she said, always know how many days you have. Doesn't matter how many years or how many weeks and how many days you have. Sure. I thought, okay. So I came home and I was so excited to go to IOP and say that I'd been to six meetings and I had my paper signed to prove it. And um, I was proud of that, right? And now I'm at the beginning of my fourth week mm-hmm. and one of the people that was I was in ILP with said well wait I know a uh, oh well my counselor said I know where you should go and she told me to go to that, my club yeah. go to. Uh-huh. she goes she goes you will find people that you have something in common with there mm. and I went why are you telling me to go to this place anyway so I went and I still didn't get it for a while but right. um, my friend took me to the back then the Friday night meeting Beginners meeting, which was packed. They opened the door and had two rooms, and it was huge. Yeah. We walked in, and we were a little bit late, which meant that we had to sit near the front. Right. Just let's sit down front. I was like, you're kidding me. So it was uh, the first time I'd been there, so you have to raise your hand uh-huh. and say that or whatever. And actually, I got my second desire chip at that meeting because she suggested I get one, uh-huh. another one, because that's where I was going to be going which I didn't know that's where I was going to be going, but she kind of said, this is where we're going to be going because we went together. Uh-huh. And that's how it kind of got started. And I say I've only gotten one desire trip, but really I've gotten two, but I've only, yeah, I haven't relapsed or anything by the grace of God. I've got continual days, but... So you were only a week away from your month chip by the time you got your second <laughs> desire chip. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So did you get a month? Yeah, I got a one month chip the next day. Oh, how cool is that? And it was funny. I went to, so this is how I started going in the morning. I went to a morning meeting on the weekend. Uh-huh. And Diane S. shared all of about her shame and guilt with her kid. Mm-hmm. 
and you know she had young children and blah blah blah, blah and one of her kids was six Lawrence was six mm-hmm. when she got sober and she shared something that just I, I, I like the sky opened up went ah <laughs> and I said I need to talk to you after the meeting and that she became my first sponsor yeah and I don't get rid of them I just keep adding them on yeah she's she's beautiful in fact uh, she's wonderful I did a, uh, an interview with her uh, last year sometime and it's an amazing story and to know her story and to hear your story I get a sense for why you were so drawn to her and why she became such a close bond in your life. That's interesting. She still is. Yeah. She was my first sponsor, and I'll never forget. So mm-hmm. right when we got to step 12, she said, oh, and by the way, you're going to be on the board of the... And I went, what? She goes, no, no. Part of you are going to... You're going to help other people. And yeah. one way you're going to do that is you're going to be on... The, you're going to serve on the advisory board of the... And I went, Okay. Guess what? Yeah. They can't get rid of me. I will be there forever. You've got 13 years now? Yep. 13. Don't get it twisted. 13 and a half. Honey. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's count the days then while we're at it. Why don't we? Um, let's get there. <laughs> by the way, one of the reasons why I've been doing this podcast is because there's so much that happens before people get sober. And there's a lot of juicy stuff in that. And then the stories about how people get sober. Oh, there's lots of great stuff around that. But most of the time, people don't talk very much about what it's been like since they got sober and things that they have faced that their sobriety got them through or incredible gifts that have happened for them that they can directly attribute to AA or to people in the program. I'm curious, can you give me an idea of some of the milestones within your recovery that have happened as a result of your participation in AA specifically, but also just staying sober in general? Wow. Um, One of the best things that's ever happened... Oh, I think about this. One of the best things that's ever happened to me is um, a a woman, Jen R., popped into my life. She could not stop drinking. (laughs) She could not stop drinking. And she became... I mean, I had a sponsee before that and some other ones that came and went and whatever. But she came to me in a time of my sobriety that I was kind of low. It was a low time of my sobriety. It was a horrible relationship. Uh, well, not a horrible relationship. A one that uh, was not, um, mm-hmm. it wasn't good. It just wasn't good. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. It was good for what where, where, we, where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, it served the purpose of whatever. But I didn't know what to do. And I was calling Diane every day, every other day, saying, you know, okay, so she said this. And how do I? She goes, well, think about what we did. What did we do? You know, go to look in the book here. And she's on set. I mean, you know, she would kind of help me walk her through the steps. Mm-hmm. And... It was amazing. And God came to me and told me what to say at just the right times for her because she was a different type of alcoholic than I was. Mm -hmm. But I'd have to say that was like that first real feeling of sitting knee to knee with a woman going all the way through the steps. And I'm crazy busy as everyone else is, as everybody is. But for some reason, my schedule opened up every other day at 430. I could meet her at the club and we could work. Like for about four months, and we banged out those steps. She and I, I mean, she, it was amazing. That must have meant a tremendous amount to your sobriety. It was amazing. It saved me. Yeah. It saved me. I understood. I know. People ask me all the time, you know, 
do you miss the stage? Do you miss performing? And I'm a teacher. And the way to keep ballet is for me to give it back. And I learned that through my sobriety, for sure. If there's something I really, really want, yeah, I need to give it away. Yeah. And that's how I keep it. And that's true. It's right in here. I mean, I will forever do this. I will forever be of service. I understood what being of service was. And I know how to do it because somebody did it for me. Yeah. Right. And that has been the most rewarding thing is now my ability. It increased my ability, my give back ability. You give back ability. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? It It absolutely increased that in my entire life. I give at a deeper level. Uh huh. I may not give more monetarily, but I give at a deeper level. I'm able to do that yeah. because of this program. So there's that. And then, of course, just uh, the way I teach, uh-huh. it's more student-centered. The way I parent, you know, it has nothing to do with me. I, I cannot believe how much has nothing to do with me. Yeah. When everything in my world had everything to do with me. I did everything. It was all about me. I, and I still grab things let go of things to grab onto them tighter, but I let go of them again sooner. Yeah. In what ways do you attribute God's involvement in your life to these beautiful things that have been going on for you? Because you, you talked earlier about sitting on that cold cement in the uh, county jail and praying to God, but then it sounded like you kind of gathered all your self-will together and did it anyway. I'm curious how you see God in this picture. So when I talked about how Jen came to me at this time when everything, when I was at a low point, uh-huh. I didn't, I hadn't completely let God in. I had, I didn't know my higher power for real until yeah. about six or seven years into my sobriety. Mm-hmm. And when I did that, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Like I said, my teaching changed, my work life changed, my Love life changed. Mm-hmm. My pick a janky guy beacon switched. Have horrible friends switched. Mm-hmm. That beacon switched. The healthy relationship beacon switched in my life. When I let things go, when I said, okay, now look, you know what to do. I don't know what to do. Guide me and I will follow. So once I kind of started being obedient and really listening to what my higher power wanted me to do and letting stuff go and sometimes not doing anything because sometimes what I'm supposed to do is nothing. It's not for me to do. Yeah. The story has turned out better than I could have written it. I actually found a way to tell my story. Um, I found a way to open up completely about my life in many ways. And now I've always wanted to be able to give back to the arts community in really big ways. Well, I'm not wealthy. I can't. And now because of these things, Even sobriety has inspired some people to give in a really big way in my name. Yeah, I get that. To some scholarships and to some other things. The doors have just opened up in a a very, um, in a very big way because I've let go of the wheel. I wouldn't have ever, I didn't want to be a director of anything. I didn't want to create anything. I did not want to write a book. But that's been placed on my heart and put out there. Now I'm helping people in a much bigger way than I ever could imagine. That is so beautiful to hear just how all of that unfolded for you. It seems like such a natural progression of a life well lived with a higher power directing the show. I was curious, you said this happened, that that change that occurred with your higher power happened six or seven years into your sobriety. 
I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I didn't really have much of a spiritual awakening until I'd been sober a couple of years. And I think sometimes people think if if they don't have a spiritual awakening or, or they don't sense God working in their life uh, within the first number of days, weeks, months, or years, that maybe they never will. How were you sustained during the period prior to that realization of God working in your life? I, and I love the way you mentioned that, because I will tell you this, God was working in my life from the beginning, from before I got sober. I just didn't realize it. I wasn't aware. And I was aware of his presence in my life up until then. I just didn't use my higher power. I didn't completely let go, mm. right? What happens, I let go bit by bit, and the bits I let go of, it's like putting a seed in the soil, right? The bits I let go of, I put yeah. the seed in the soil, they would sprout, and they, it would this beautiful plant, right? And the bits I didn't let go of were still on the ground. Once I let hmm. them go, they'd sprout into this beautiful plant. So I kept seeing this as I went along. So you think that this hard-headed ballerina would see that and then just uh -huh. let go. Well, it doesn't happen that way. Growth is growth. And I think my higher power needed me to, to go through these steps to really trust. I had to take the steps on the steps. So I will tell you this. Yeah. Every time I got closer to him is when I did the steps again. So I've, I've worked the steps four times now. I'm, still, I'm in the middle of the steps again. And now I'm doing what's mm -hmm. called, I guess, the Big Book Awakening or something. I'm doing this. Yeah, so I'm doing oh, yeah. it that way. Mm -hmm. But I will say mm -hmm. that every time I worked the steps or searched, I found and I got closer. Yeah. I just wasn't at a place where I am now. So there's growth. There's yeah. growth in the program. There's growth as a sponsor. There's growth as a sponsee. There's growth. There's just growth. And I'm not saying anything's yeah. good or anything's bad. It just is. And I'm grateful for the way yeah. it, it has unfolded, because that seems to be the yeah. way I grow is is that way. Uh, and, and I can even say I learned ballet that way. I, I, it's just my way. And everyone's way is, is individual. And it's okay. It's such a beautiful testament to how God comes into your life because God's never yeah. gone out of your life. Does that make sense? That's right. And that awareness of God's presence, mostly by not only doing the steps, but it sounds like the sponsoring that you've done. All of these things have guided you to this center of knowing just how important the program is and how God is connected with that importance. It's just a, it's a beautiful testament to that. And, and I wanted to tell you how meaningful that sounds to me and how I look at a woman like you doing all the things you're doing and say, this is a woman who really gets it. She gets the program. She, she knows what she needs to do and how she needs to do it. But I never take that for granted. I, I hear you say that and it makes me, I, I feel guarded. I, I feel, um, I, um, I, I'm going to say this because I'm working on this. Thank you. Right. Okay. Yes. But thank you. Yeah. I, that's just, and it's momentary. It's moment by moment. I, I tell you, yeah. I go back to that very first thing that that very first woman said to me when she put her hand on my knee. I just don't have to whatever today. And I put that blank is always drinking, drugging, people pleasing. You don't have to be perfect. Perfection's a myth. I mean, I put different things in that line every day. I get that. And that's how. That's the how. Why? Why? Yeah. Because 
I want to know peace. I love being peaceful. Yeah. I'm not peaceful all day, every day. I get out of sorts. I get out of sorts. Uh-huh. It's not perfect. It's yeah. not always pretty. It's not always clean. It's not always neat and tidy. And there's not always sparkles. <laughs> and I love sparkles. Yeah. But yeah. I put different things in that line that I have to give away to my higher power so that my higher power deals with it. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. I have to have an action. Yeah. But I don't have to, mm-hmm. to, to be in control of it. That's it. I have to deal with that. I don't have to be in control of it. What a beautiful realization. And it's one that I think makes a big difference to people who know that's how it's done. That's how it's worked in your life. Of course, if it worked in your life, if it's worked in my life, there's a good chance it can work in the next person's life, too. And you and I are living examples of what we need to be doing on a daily basis. I just love the way I see you working your program. I honor your sobriety. Uh, I love you, and you've been a great uh, comrade in this journey day by day. Um, I want to thank you for, for doing this. Is, is there anything else? I, I sometimes ask this question, and I'll leave it up to you whether or not you want to answer it. I can edit it out if I need to. But if you could go back to a Lauren, knowing what you know now, if you could go back to a Lauren at any point in her life and talk to her about what you've learned which Lauren would that be? Would it be the little girl Lauren? Would it be the older? Who, who would that be and what would you say it to her? It would be the little girl Lauren. And I'd say, honey, you're okay just like you are. You are huh. okay just like you are. You don't have to be anybody else. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. You're the, you're the best you you can be. You're already the best you you can be. That's beautiful. I'll bet you'd give her a big old hug, too, wouldn't you? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. Oh, yes. <laughs> I knew you would. I'd hold her and say that to <laughs> That's her. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> I would. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for doing this today. You're, you're just a fine friend, and I'm so happy that your life is, is busy and productive, and you're helping to affect other women's lives and helping them stay sober while you're helping yourself stay sober. It's just a, it's a win-win-win situation all around. I win-win. hope you never, you never stray from that center of the program that I see you in on an ongoing basis. So. Thank you so much. This has been great. I'm going to have an awesome day today. This has been awesome. Of course you are, because you're making it awesome, and God's got it in his plan for you and me to be together right now, and I hope I'll have a chance to see you before too long. Yes. Again, many thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Lauren A., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Especially tell those in other parts of the country. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. 
By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.